Welcome to episode two of the Access for Who podcast. I'm your host, Chao, and I'm joined by my colleague, Malemo. And today we will be talking about digital collections. We will be looking at what it means to digitize the things that we have in museums, uh, what it means to access them, to share them with communities, and also to look at the absences that we have in our knowledge and in the ways we interact with history and culture as a whole. Uh, Molemo is going to do an introduction to museums, but before we begin, I'd just like to say that we will start with a deep dive into the definitions that we need for today's episode. Um, so these are terms around museum practice, um, research, and everything that sets the stage uh, for the wonderful speakers that we have with us today. Yes, as you say, Chao, um, the speakers who are speaking about collections and museum practice really do kind of give us an amazing introduction and kind of whirlwind tour of some key issues that are core to the questions of museum practice today, but also to collections practice today and inherently, therefore, to um, restitution as a, as a core issue. And so we thought we would um, ask you to indulge us um, as we kind of just give you some key words uh, to work with. And uh, these will come up all through the episode today, but also in, in episodes in future. So I suppose the first thing is really just to give a bit of an introduction to what we mean when we say collections within the space of the museum. So collections refer to what are often called artifacts, uh, which are the, the things that you go see when you go and visit a museum. Most museums show less than 10% of the artifacts, the collections that they have in their museums. Most of them are kept um, in the storerooms. And of course, the big question is how, how they've come to be there. And that's, that's really become the big question around restitution and the kind of global discussion around restitution. Um, and so it's helpful to, to have a little bit of a sense of how um, they've gotten there. And many authors, and I think we will put some further reading lists into the um, uh, podcast notes for this podcast, if you would like. But many authors sort of cite the origins of contemporary museums and, and what we understand to be museums in the idea of the cabinet of curiosities, which was this concept uh, that emerged particularly in the period when Europe was discovering, and I use the word discovering in scare quotes because it's not true, um, discovering the rest of the world. And we're really interested in studying all of this newness and this exotic kind of um, human beings, geographies, uh, landscapes, uh, plants, animals, etc. And bringing those things back and putting them in what were called cabinets of curiosities. And of course, the word curiosities really marks uh, the sense of exoticization of, of what this meant. And these were usually quite wealthy people, often uh, royal families. And the collections were happening by scientists, botanists, but also missionaries who were being sent all around the world to um, spread Christianity, as well as within war situations by soldiers who would then bring these objects back and they would be um, 
collected within this kind of scope of objects indicating a person's wealth, but also a person's expertise and knowledge about things beyond the borders of Europe. Um, and that cabinet of curiosities idea is kind of the foundation of what then expands into uh, what we come to understand as the museum, which of course has changed substantially since then. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we can cite examples of, of different museums in the world um, that really have been founded on this, this kind of idea that other cultures are there to be observed and looked at. So the other thing that we want to define is uh, this concept around Western museum development. And when we talk about this, we are referring particularly to the ways in which Western museums relate to other parts of the world, vis-a-vis the ways in which uh, material was collected, was, um, as Malemo has explained, um, was gathered uh, by different agents of imperialism, of colonialism, and put in certain spaces um, to observe the people. So, for example, there's a museum in Brussels, um, in Tervuren, but this museum was basically set up by King Leopold um, at the time when... um, he had considered uh, Congo or Congo Free State as part of his private property. And the museum was set up to basically display to the Belgian people and the Europeans what Congo was like, you know, the people and the cultures and the environment and the the nature, you know. So this museum, I think, in its foundation really speaks to that idea that uh, museums were not set up initially also to preserve culture. They were set up to observe. Um, And it's important because when we begin to look through these collections, when we begin to unpack what it means to have hundreds of thousands of objects kept in basements with very little context, with incorrect information, it ties directly both to like Western museum development and expansion, as well as the foundation of the cabinets of curiosities, as Molemo introduced us to. And of course, today we think of uh, museums and artifacts in slightly different terms. Today, museums are often referred to in the framework of knowledge creation, of care for cultures, um, of sharing um, cultures in, in different places in the world, or even the history of one's own place um, with a public. And that idea of care uh, really emerges a bit later in the imagination of the Western Museum, but is still very much centered around the idea of the object. And so the object and the authentic object remains kind of pivotal to how museums think about themselves. That has shifted a bit. We have education programs. We have um, more and more social engagement strategies. Um, Museum professionals increasingly have a much more complex role to play in how museums kind of interact with society. But the object kind of remains the center of that. And that's, of course, important for our discussion around the digital as part of this, this podcast. And is also important, I think, in relation to Uh, and maybe this is more of a personal opinion, but in in relation to a kind of Western interest in collecting, gathering, hoarding objects, things, as opposed to maybe the way other parts of the world relate to history in relation to oral histories or other kinds of ways of thinking about memory. Um, And that's, that's important because, of course, within the colonial framework, many museums were actually built in colonial contexts, 
And so we also have um, uh, the inheritance of museums in contexts like my own, South Africa, or Charles, Kenya, and many others, um, which which remain in post-colonial spaces as these kinds of remnants of this logic of the object and which uh, are very much based um, on the tradition of the ethnographic or anthropological museum, um, which in the Western context now is often referred to as museums of world cultures or museums of culture and peoples. Um, but we're historically about learning about, as, as you said, Chow, observing others, right? And we have these museums based on that foundation in our own contexts, uh, which obviously have quite a complex role in terms of how we memorialize, make knowledge about and learn about ourselves and our own cultures historically and contemporarily. And, and you'll hear people referring to local museum practice within formerly colonial contexts throughout this podcast and in other episodes as well. Absolutely. And, and what you just said is interesting because, you know, right now, based on, you know, the way in which we have inherited the concept of museums and this object-centered approach, um, it's easy to think that this is how history can exist. It's the only way for, for history to exist and it's the only way for history to be preserved. But at the same time, um, what is important for us to keep in mind is that different societies, different cultures have had their own completely separate way of understanding their history, of understanding the environment, of preserving knowledge that do not sit within the idea that um, for knowledge to be preserved, it has to be written, or for history to be preserved, it has to be kept in a basement under temperature control conditions. And so this brings me to my next definition, which is around something that you'll hear throughout the episode. And these are the three words that I love to hear, indigenous knowledge systems. Um, I'll say it again, indigenous knowledge systems. And when we talk about indigenous knowledge systems, we are referring to a wide range of things, which include, but are not limited to, the understanding, the kind of philosophies, the skills, and the ways in which different societies have had very long histories and very long interactions with their environment and their surroundings and have come up with ways of connecting uh, multiple things, you know, so from dance to music to language to food to the ways in which human beings express themselves, um, express themselves in relation to the environment. And Indigenous knowledge um, is also very holistic in terms of looking at everything as being connected, um, as the food being connected to expression, being connected to dance, being connected to language, and at the ethos of it being connected to the fact that you are a human being um, and you are centered in an environment and you are not just separate from the environment, but a part of the environment. Um, and so the key word here is also system um, because the system is, is complex. Um, it comprises of different things. Um, we're not just talking about one thing. So we say indigenous knowledge systems because we are looking at multiple aspects of human life, of social interaction, um, and the ways in which knowledge has been preserved for generations and generations in, in different places. This is especially important. Take your notes at this point, because 
uh, when we begin the discussion on intellectual property and copyrights, we will talk about Indigenous knowledge systems. And so this will come up again um, in the next episode. But for now, one of the things that we also want to talk about is the idea and the concept of provenance research. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. Uh, but Malema is going to give us an introduction to that as well. First, I should say, ciao, great definition of Indigenous knowledge systems. That's not a very easy thing to explain. Good job. Our last keyword, and then we will stop, is provenance research. And provenance research has become a kind of central uh, key word for restitution issues in Europe and has some has a kind of complex role that it's playing in restitution concerns. Um, but we won't go into that complexity now. Instead, we will just explain that provenance research refers to particularly museum professionals, but also other researchers, finding out how artifact, object, uh, part of material culture has arrived in a museum. And that usually means tracking the process of collection, because often museums bought objects directly from the person who collected them. But in, in, in other cases, they would have bought them from someone else who would have bought them from someone else who would have bought them from someone else, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the key things of provenance research is how objective material culture has ended up in European hands in general. So understanding that some objects were given as gifts, some objects were perhaps um, sold so objects being sold is a, is a complex issue, and of course we'll come back to this. But of course there are also cases where objects were stolen, um, objects were acquired through war and violence. And so provenance research tries to identify what that story has been. And this is often referred to as object biographies, which is really telling the story of uh, the object, and, and the, the word biography is obviously important in the sense of trying to give that object life, uh, which is vital also to indigenous knowledge systems and thinking about our material culture as having life and not just being dead representations of something else in a museum. Just to quickly mention, of course, that provenance research has a very complex role in that um, some of its primary basis has been in trying to determine the right to keep objects by museums and that a lot of European funding has gone into provenance research as a kind of foundational concern of restitution. However, increasingly museums have shifted to a much more collaborative approach to provenance research and a much more knowledge-oriented, like learning more um, about museums about collecting practices and, of course, about the material culture held in museums, uh, working often with what is often referred to people of source communities or um, individuals from formerly colonized or sort of global South majority world environments. Um, so provenance research itself has gone through different ways of thinking about it. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to throw Malema under the bus here, but I just had a question. Is it correct to say that provenance research is a research on how the object got into the museum or came to the museum, um, it, like where it's come from until the point where it enters a museum collection? Or does it start like even after it's gone into the museum? After it's gone into the museum in the sense of? So is it like the research of how the object came to the museum purely and then that's where it ends? So it's like it came from Kenya and then it went somewhere to Switzerland, and then Belgium, and then the UK, and then now it's in France, and that's the entirety of its 
provenance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, my, I think uh, my understanding of provenance research is the primary understanding is how it left African hands or hands of the original, mm-hmm. original person and entered into um, a museum. An interesting example is one of the largest um, provenance projects which was developed in Germany. I'm going to forget mm-hmm. the name of it. It's named after a Greek god based on an object in the collection, but is an example of an early provenance uh, research project done within a museum about its collection on the basis that the collection actually came mm-hmm. from a German royal family. And they needed, due to requests for return by the royal family, they needed to understand how the royal family's objects had entered into their collection and the terms by which those objects had entered into collection. I think part of that is also understanding how those objects entered into um, the hands of the original peoples as well Mm -hmm. and what the significance of them would have been. So... For example, uh, it's important to understand if a object from a specific context in mm. Africa had really major ritual significance because then you would be able to understand that this wouldn't have just been um, sold, mm, right? It, it would have been something that was precious. Mm. Um, and so that's important to understand as part of provenance research as well. And so in this German example, they needed to understand, for example, if objects were of deep family significance and had been handed down from one queen to another, in which case um, a family might have rights to have that returned from the museum collection. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting thinking of this European European to European example to also shift some of the complex assumptions uh, that emerge in provenance research um, and the power dynamics in the African context as well. Thank you. I mean, it's 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 very interesting, and in, in in itself, in and of itself, it it sound it can sound very complex. But I think when you distill it into, into the ways in which you've talked about how an object got there, what it was used for, and that being part of of the research in itself, um, it really does speak to the nature of of the complexity that goes into 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 the work that museums do. Um, so based on our early discussion, I think you can tell that Malema and I crazy about museums uh, we <laughs> we've done a, we spent a lot of time maybe even an unhealthy amount of time thinking about museums but we don't necessarily work in museum in a museum um, at the moment as of, as of this um, the production of this podcast <laughs> uh, so we will begin after the heavy set of introductions that you have just had we start off with Golda um, who works at the National Museum of Namibia and who will tell us firsthand um, and directly what it means and what it looks like to work for a national museum on the African continent. Hi, Milema and Shao. Um, thank you for having me. I'm Golda Eros. Um, I currently work as a senior curator at the National Museum of Namibia, and I work in the anthropology collection, and I also worked as or served as a guest researcher in Berlin Museums, their collection with Namibia, with Namibian cultural objects. Yes. Maybe to start off with, I mean, the project initially aimed to preserve Namibian material and immaterial cultural heritage, you know, as a means to unblock the creative potential um, of the colonial collections from Namibia that are housed in Berlin. I think the main aim is also to kind of reconnect the collections 
with each other in terms of the collection that the National Museum has and collections that are overseas, kind of reconnecting them as well as reconnecting them to their heritage communities, you know, and researchers and artists and the entire public in Namibia as it seeks to build Namibian capacity to conserve and curate collections in Namibia. So even today, when you think about provenance research, from my perspective, I wouldn't exactly know where do I go start. And I think it's also this whole notion of adapting words. And I'm always just like, why can't we see provenance research as object biographies, where we talk about the historical um, significance of this specific object, cultural understanding, social meaning of this object, you know. So I think looking at these objects, investigating whether they were acquired violently or they had consent, because, I mean, you have to be honest to say also, it wasn't only war, but there were missionaries also that were living amongst communities. Some were gifted, some objects were traded. So um, you need to look into that as well. And being able to handle these objects and engage in a in-depth research process, I think that's what we were doing, gave us the opportunity to really unlock a portal into our past and to realize that, you know what, these objects in the collection, they gained a different value, um, a different significance um, that was previously lost because it kind of lost its identity when it it became, what do you call it? An antique <laughs> in the museum. Um, whereas... For us, it, it's it's an object with a purpose and, you know, and that's what it was for. And you use it and, and the lifespan kind of ends there. So Golda speaks to, to the ways in which um, collections and making collections accessible really can be a path to reconnection. But what's interesting to me, because this episode is about digital collections after all, is that a lot of this work around documenting objects, finding out what they are, you know, where they're from, is happening online, it's happening across countries, it's happening across borders and continents. And when we speak about digital, you know, sometimes it's very easy to speak or rather to think of the highest tech stuff, you know, the biggest cameras and the biggest scanners and the biggest, com most complex databases. But in our conversation with Golda, I was really struck by the ways in which she views, um, particularly the ways technology has uh, helped bring this discussion on objects and collections closer to home. Um, and she really gives us an understanding of the fact that technology does not have to have um, complexity for it to have impact. It just needs to be familiar. I recall at that time, I think it was um, a colleague of mine, I mean, on the project, I think there were two of them. And we were looking at these objects and I was like, hmm, do I know this object? I've, I've seen it because my grandmother used to have a glass cabinet in her sitting room where she would have like champagne bottles from her wedding, like little ornaments, tortoiseshells, um, leather sacks, similar items that were in the museum that she had um, treasured and kept. I'm guessing they were passed down and she just kept them in that glass cabinet. So initially, as we said that, we were like, okay, now we need to WhatsApp people because we don't, 
I can't think to email because who has an email address on the phone? No one. Um, and then even with WhatsApp, it was so tricky because I had to WhatsApp an aunt. I had to WhatsApp my father. He had to make a trip to Okumbai, which is like from the capital. It's about a four hour drive to show the pictures. So it was about taking pictures, WhatsApping them to back home and asking, have you guys seen this object? What do you know about this object? What can you tell me about this object? And because on the team, um, each one of our, we try to be, I think they try to be very representative of the Namibian community. So it was from each ethnic group. So my colleague is there trying to contact her family and I'm here contacting my family. And it was all done digitally through our phones. There was really no other way to do it. Like I was saying, the museum just has the object, but the knowledge is not there. And the knowledge is with the people, but the people were back at home. So I think that was our only way of communicating with each other. So it was, and I think that's why we also called it a um, a network of knowledge. I think as 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 um, African practitioners, we we don't necessarily have a legacy to uphold. I think we are taking from we are taking from um, what didn't work. We are taking that along and going forward. But we are also re not reinventing per se, but we have a chance to create something new and exciting, you know. And sometimes what I struggle most with um, digitizing is the access. And I know just how troublesome internet can be in the region, you know. Um, if you honestly speaking, who, who's going to see this? If I put it, if I'm only focused on um digitizing my collection, but how else are people going to have access to my collection? Golda makes such an important point when she states that African practitioners don't necessarily have a legacy, like a museum legacy to uphold, but are rather working from what didn't work before. And I think this is such a vital statement because it really speaks to, I think, a whole new generation of museum workers who are committed to thinking about what museum practice in particularly formerly colonial museums within formerly colonial contexts are having to address and to rethink what the museum can really do. And uh, Golda also points out the question of what digitization could possibly do within the space of that of collections within those contexts and the, the challenges of thinking about uh, technology and the digital as um, simply ways of digitizing collections and putting them out in the world, as opposed to technologies, ways of connecting and creating knowledge, as she describes in in the case of the project that she was working on. What I think this points to is really the museum as much more a space of uh, reclaiming knowledge, of ensuring that forms of memory and forms of history are made present within the space of institution that has historically been about objects. So she is going out, she's using WhatsApp because she's interested in what are these objects about, what do they mean? And she's recognized that there is a gap of that information in Western collections that have the objects, right, in this project that she's working on. But she is more vitally committed to the stories and the people behind the objects than the objects. And I think this is what she's pointing about, like not being dedicated to the legacy of objectness, 
even though, of course, care for objects remains the role of any museum worker, but really reshifting into the museum as a social space and as a space of social histories. Um, and, and I suppose to a degree really working with the traditions and cultures of oral history that are so vital and grounding to the way a lot of African history operates. It's also very, very, very important in a way to see that uh, it's not about just making something accessible and taking a photo of it, that the chance of connection and connecting this object with the photo, with the photo to the people, the people to the history, you know, like there is a cycle that is so integral to meaning and to making meaning out of a single photograph. And in this way, I think the practitioners that we speak to in this podcast who are based in Southern Africa are doing really, really amazing things. Um, so from Namibia, we move across the border into Zambia, where Samba and Mulenga from the Women's History Museum, um, we heard from them in episode one. They have embarked on a project to digitize and make accessible collections of Zambian heritage. Um, and they give us a bit of intro into the why, why are they doing it, and the how, how are they going about digitization um, within the project. Okay. Okay. So my name is Melinda. The the um, work with the Women's History Museum, I think, really began from a point where we felt one um, there isn't enough um, documentation of women's history in Zambia, but also you know everywhere really. We felt you know one day over a cup of coffee <laughs> that there wasn't enough. Uh, being done in terms of documenting women's history, you know, as women, uh, you know, women from the past, but also women who are living and making history today, that we haven't really done a good job, at least in our country, of, of documenting that. But we did find out that we were not the only ones, because um, the first project that we did, which was a partnership with Wikipedia, we discovered that that is true of many countries, that um, women's history is actually kind of disappearing and not being adequately documented. With that, of course, we also understood that um, women uh, women come with a lot of, of history, but also with a lot of uh, knowledge, especially indigenous knowledge, because uh, women have interacted with the ecos- ecosystem, they've interacted in political spaces, they've, they've interacted in, in many ways. But um, through um, this through a foundation of our indigenous knowledge. So we also wanted to kind of explore that and see how we can document that, mainstream it, and get it out to people. Um, our aim is to get history out in a way that people can interact with it and um, keep it alive, uh, make it um, a living history, uh, rather than just something that you visit once in a while when you go to a museum. Mulanga speaks to the point of getting history out when the founding premise of museums is really to keep history in. I like to think of digital collections and physical collections as being part of the same ecosystem in that digital collections do not exist um, separate from physical collections. They just exist in a different format and a different um, world, as you may call it. So it's important for us to ask how can digital tools and the kind of connections that we're making, how do they complement existing forms of knowledge? You know, we spoke about indigenous knowledge systems in the beginning, and it's interesting to see that indigenous knowledge 
is a part of the digital discussion in itself, yeah? Absolutely. And I think um, the Women's History Museum Zambia just does such exciting work in uh, blurring these boundaries and really testing the possibilities of the idea of museum and idea of collections. Um, and very much uh, because of a kind of activist position around women's histories and African women's histories in particular, are really dedicated to thinking through how um, how this knowledge will then operate in the world, you know, and, and how do museums um, have, in a sense, uh, an activist role in and of themselves, particularly in the African context where so much has been taken from the continent. Um, some studies guess as much as 90% of Africa's material heritage was is outside of the African continent or uh, African historical African material heritage is outside of the African continent. So how do we rebuild? How do we recreate? And how do we do that in ways that really represent and, and link to um, indigenous knowledge systems from the continent as well? The more we had discussions, the more we, we realized that digital media could actually be a way we could test how to archive indigenous knowledge systems, how to document them and how to restore them. And I think through continued contact with various players um, in the field and outside the field, as Wamalinga has said, we discovered many things, information, um, you know, structures of use, but also other museum experts. And I th then we encountered, uh, not just from within the museum here in Zambia, but elsewhere as well, and we discovered they had uh, Zambian objects as well. And we started thinking around how to use digital media as a way of interacting with some of these objects and not just the indigenous knowledge systems uh, and the oral archives that were, we were coming into contact with. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on this point around digitization and documentation because I think that the process of digitization is so crucial to how we encounter digital collections. I also mentioned in the beginning that it's very easy to get lost in the allure of the technicality of things, you know, and, and what cameras do we need, what lights do we need, but really a lot of the work and a big bulk of um, what makes a digitization project successful is in the decision-making. Um, in the kind of ways in which we prioritize community, even before we begin this work, in the kind of ways we say um, that the culture is the most important thing. And so if you're looking at indigenous knowledge systems, uh, what ways does the technology support this? If you're looking at oral history, what ways does the technology support this? Um, as opposed to saying, I have this, you know, very expensive piece of tech and I need to use it for something, anything. So we're prioritizing the culture first and then using the technology to support our needs within the culture. And in Samba and Mulenga, they really do speak to an approach that is, is very holistic and is very considerate of what it means to document, as Mulemo, you said, um, systems or histories that have been hidden, you know, and, and digital technology sort of becomes also a place for activism in a way. Um, and so I like, I like asking these questions because when we think about how we digitize, who's going to access the material and where they're going to access it, it really forces us to center human perspectives within the discussion. 
What do you what do you think? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love this phrase that you have of um care for the culture first. That mm. so much of what the um women's history museum in Zambia is about is care for the culture first. And and this is also this vital because uh, within museums, one of the primary roles within the museum is the curator. Uh, mm-hmm. The curator is the person who is uh, responsible for the collections, but who also is often responsible for a lot of the knowledge creation and publishing and kind of academic style work that emerges out of museums. And the word mm-hmm. curate uh, comes from the word care. Uh, is, it comes from, I think, the Latin word for care. And so the curator is the carer of mm. collections. <laughs> and yet uh, what we often see is caring for collections, not caring for the culture, right? And so I, mm. I really, um, I think what you're saying is so vital in the sense of how do we mm. start to completely rethink um, again this obsession with the object and the collection as opposed to the culture, and I think really links to what Nima and Kola were saying in uh, the last episode around using technologies for our own purposes um, and, and creating mm. technologies that can really enhance our own needs um, and that might even mm. work from our own epistemic or indigenous knowledge systems, uh, which I think is really mm-hmm. just such an exciting possibility um, and, and really... Mm is so different to what we see happening currently in museums where there is, in many ways, a very um, well-meaning rush to digitize Mm -hmm. collections because Mm -hmm. there's a feeling that museums need to be ahead of the times, they need to be sort of in line with technology, and so they're rushing to digitize objects under the guise of care. Um, and yet this rush for digitization is done en masse. Um, we've spoken about this a lot, Chow. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, it's really just about, oh, we've got the biggest, bestest machines that can do it the fastest. Um, and then we just mm-hmm. digitize, 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 digitize. But again, how do you decide what do you digitize? How do you digitize when you mm-hmm. don't really have much else other than an object and very little information about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean to make copies of things you don't understand? Who's going to access this digital mm-hmm. material? What is the purpose of this digital material? Where is it going to go? How is it going to be accessed? All these questions that you're saying mm-hmm. are so important become less important than just digitizing on mass. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really interesting because what um, Samba and Mulenga and other women's history museum and um, practitioners like Gold are showing us is that it's not really about quantity you know it's not just about how much can you digitize in two months it's about the quality of the work you're producing it's about the quality of the connections you have with people the quality of the connection you have with the culture and that's what really really um speaks to a more i think sustainable and holistic way of approaching digitization um because as as you said Mulemo, we are looking at um there's a there's a rush almost to just say all the 500,000 objects from this collection are now online um but then that's a lot you know i think sometimes we are desensitized by numbers because we're so used to like data and big data that we don't we don't imagine what it is. Yes, <laughs> yes. If we had yes. 500,000 objects in a room, I mean, I don't even think they would fit in my house. 
you know, like we're talking about <laughs> no, they wouldn't. <laughs> we're talking about huge quantities of artifacts and things that are so representative of so much more than their physical embodiment. And um Temi Temi Odumoso from our first episode really speaks to the ways in which this kind of mass digitizing or mass production of of digital copies of artifacts and archives can be a violence uh, in itself. So there's something about kind of um, use, it's kind of like, it's almost like a kind of backing up, you know, how you back up your hard drive, right? And you, you, you create another replication of it so that, you know, if you lose anything or whatever, there's a, there's a copy there. Um, but I think what institutions have been doing is kind of creating a kind of um, backup that stands in for the collection in the public world so that then they can just, you know, do other things. Um, and I don't think this is, um, I don't think this is necessarily a negative thing, except when that digital material is so quickly produced that it loses the context of the collection, of history, uh, of cultural stories, of communities of, um, of conscience that protect the materials that are being digitized, then that's where the kind of violence sets in, right? Because when you're digitizing as an institution, it's very rare that you're doing it one by one, right? Except if it's like a really, you know, like if it's um, 3D materials and you're doing 3D scanning, okay, then it's like a much slower process. But with 2D materials, with with uh, photographs or with uh, documents that can be scanned and so on. Um, these things often happen in batch, uh, which means that the time it's going to take to then, you know, make the collections, make the originals connect with the digitals in a meaningful way um, is just more time and resources than institutions often have. And I think in that break, what you have is a lot of, open access material that's just sort of floating in digital space um, without the necessary context to give it weight and meaning. And the reason why I say weight and meaning is because in the context of the discussion about colonialism, um, the theft of um, artifacts and and cultural material from different communities around the world, um, that that space of ensuring that the digital artifact speaks some kind of truth about what happened with the original becomes more important. So I think we will just leave what uh, Tammy has said with you for you to unpack that because I think what she says is just so powerful and really serves as a great way to round up what we know has been a bit of a deep dive Um, for any of you who aren't really familiar with this material, but I think it's also a really interesting way to enter into a conversation around how some really extraordinary African professionals are thinking about what museums and collections can do in the world. So in part two of episode two, uh, we will be looking into the more practical ways of uh, dealing with the issues around digitization that we have uh, highlighted in this episode. We'll be looking at the issue of absence, of um, ways of connecting and and reaching audiences, as well as what it means um, from an African perspective to speak about 
digital restitution, which is the whole premise behind this podcast. Uh, so see you in episode two, part two. This podcast is brought to you by Open Restitution Africa, a collaboration between African Digital Heritage and Andani Africa. The podcast is produced by Chao Tayana Maina and Mulemo Mwilwa, with Pumzile Nombo Sotwala and Letabolaka Gumede on research. Thank you to Josh Chiundiza for the music, Karugu Maina on design, and Annalene van Heimbeek on editing. The podcast was made possible by 99 Questions at the Stifton Humboldt Forum in Berliner Schloss. This podcast is also available in zine form in French and German at www.openrestitution.africa and www.humboldtforum.org. Thank you for joining us.